Welcome to the Yoga Focus Podcast. My name is Laura Gellner, and I am a yoga therapist and occupational therapist based in New Jersey. I created the Yoga Focus Podcast as a way to talk about the tools and techniques of yoga and to see how we can use those techniques to create a greater sense of focus and clarity within our life. Hey everyone, welcome to a really special episode of the Yoga Focus podcast. You might have already noticed that this is the first podcast that I've done since I cut my hair. And the reason that I finally cut off my hair was because I finished the book that I've been working on. I like to give myself an interesting goal or wait until something rather substantial happens in my life and that's when I cut my hair. So for this one, it is the project that I've been working on for about the past three years, which is this yoga book about using the wall as a prop in a therapeutically based yoga practice. There's another episode of the podcast where I talked a bit about how I actually went through this process of self-publishing, of writing, of doing the pictures because there are literally hundreds of pictures in the book. That was a whole process of um, doing really low budget photography sessions. Patrick was my photographer for half of the book and then I ended up using my camera to do the other half when he was no longer available to help me with that on the weekends. So this whole process has finally, finally, finally come together and I have this tangible product of all of that hard work. Today I just wanted to talk to you about what it was about this type of practice that motivated me to put all of this work into creating this cohesive body of knowledge about using the wall. And I have to say I really went back and forth for a while of just calling the book Yoga at the Wall. And I finally decided that it was going to be Yoga Therapy at the Wall because um, for really a few different reasons. One of which is that my background, my education is beyond what would be encompassed in normal yoga because I have training training as an occupational therapist and as a yoga therapist. The information in this book is a little bit beyond the scope of what somebody who just has a, a 200 hour yoga alliance certification would really be pulling into their practice. Is that to say that this book is only for yoga therapists? No, definitely not. I think this is actually going to be something that I pull a lot of information from when we do our next teacher training at Hummingbird Yoga in the fall. The very first part of the book is the language of anatomy. And one of the things that I love about the teacher training that we do at the studio is that usually day one, I'm the first person to start the teaching process and we start from understanding the body and looking at the 12 body systems that come together to create this thing that's going to be in front of us when we're teaching and then starting to 
develop your language as a teacher and not even necessarily the language that you're going to use constantly when you're teaching, but the language that you're going to use to gain knowledge about the body and to describe movement. I like to say that yoga postures, of course, are one-eighth of the system. There are all these other different components, so you may or may not practice physical postures, but as teachers, if you focus on teaching physical postures, you are a movement professional. And if you want to be included with other movement professionals like physical therapists and personal trainers and athletic trainers and all these people who work on the body, if we want a seat at that table, we need to know the language. Not just the Sanskrit of yoga, but we really need to know that universal language of anatomy. So that's the very first thing that we do during teacher training. It's also the very first thing in this book. One of the things that I was struggling with when I would teach the anatomy and physiology portion of our yoga teacher training was my students would ask for a book that described all of these things. And I have some really great yoga anatomy books, but none of them have the foundation information in the beginning of what are the planes of movement, what are the terminology that we use to describe movement on each of those planes in each of those joints. So that was how I decided to structure the book. Very first thing, the full breakdown of the planes of the body, the terms that we use, proximal and distal, superior and inferior. And again, these are not the terms that you're going to use when you're describing things to students in a general population unless you were teaching specifically to people who had a medical background or a movement background, you wouldn't so much be using these kind of terms, but when you're reading journal articles, when you are reading texts that talk about anatomy, this is the language that you need to have under your belt so that you can absorb that new information. And that's so important for keeping yoga teachers updated in the modern world of movement science so that we don't get stuck with movements and techniques that are based on information that's outdated. We need to have that language so that we can constantly be learning and updating our practice. There are specific pictures that go through each of the movements of the body on each of the planes of the body. And then the rest of the book uses those terms. And I think to look at them and to think, okay, this is elbow flexion and this is elbow extension is one thing, but to actually integrate that into, okay, well, how would I use that language? How would I describe different poses? What does that do to the muscles? That's a whole different process of actually using the language. And you can think about any other language. I know for me, I tried to study Spanish. I took Spanish for three years in high school and it really didn't go well. I was an excellent student in everything except for Spanish. And um, I found that it was because I was just using it for that 45 minutes or an hour that I was in the classroom and not at all for the rest of the day. And didn't practice it since then. So when we went to Puerto Rico, my Spanish was super rusty. 
Whereas if you actually go to a place that uses that language and I was forced into it, and I did feel like when I was in Puerto Rico for that week, little words started to come back because I was struggling and digging really deep to find them. But that gave me an opportunity to actually practice saying them and using them in a real life situation. And I think the same thing has to go for the way that we study anatomy. It's about practicing speaking with that language so that it gets very ingrained in you. But we have to practice being able to switch back and forth really quickly. And this is what I see a lot of therapists in a clinical setting struggling with this, that we need to be able to type our notes and speak to each other in anatomical terminology and proper clinical terms. And then we need to really quickly switch gears when you're talking to the patient or when you're talking to a family member, you need to explain that in the simplest, clearest terms possible. So that's a skill that we need to develop to be able to switch really quickly back and forth, depending on who our audience is so that we're more effective at that communication. But definitely as you go through the manual, this is going to help you to integrate those anatomical terms because I use them throughout the book. It's broken down into areas of the body. I found that that was the most effective way for me to organize the different chapters. But after you go through the language of anatomy, the next section in the book is the introduction. And in the introduction, this was really where I decided to use the name yoga therapy at the wall instead of just yoga at the wall because I wanted to base this whole body of knowledge on integrating the nervous system and utilizing breathing techniques as a way to self-regulate, as a way to actually impact and change our physiology, which I think is what a lot of people get from their yoga practice without even realizing it. It's kind of something that happens that you know when you walk into yoga, you're a little bit tightly wound, maybe a little anxious, unsettled. When you walk out of yoga, you usually feel more relaxed, more at ease, more grounded. And we know that that experience exists. The mechanism of it, a lot of us don't really bother to think about that. We just know if I go to yoga class, it's going to get me to that point, which is great. But as yoga teachers, we need to understand that process. And in understanding that process, we can really know, well, what components are shifting our energy in this direction? What components are shifting our energy in the other direction? And then how can you take those tools and apply them accordingly? especially when you're working in a yoga therapy context where it's one person that's directly in front of you, you're looking at their specific needs, which is a little bit different than when you're in a group setting and there's a whole bunch of students in front of you and you're really teaching a very general open level class, something that's going to work for most people. Yoga therapy is more individual, more specific, so you can utilize those techniques of self-regulation very specifically, which is such an interesting process, seeing what works for different individuals. Okay, that first chapter, or it's actually not even a chapter, it's just the introduction, goes through the difference between yoga and yoga therapy. And I think the main difference between that is the background of the teacher, the background of that person 
the amount of knowledge that they have. When you do your 200 hour teacher training, it's only 20 hours of training in anatomy. And I can tell you personally from teaching those 20 hours, you are cramming in a huge amount of information into those 20 hours. And I think a lot of students, if they don't have a background in that kind of stuff already, that can be an overwhelming amount of information that doesn't all get absorbed. So the, the yoga therapy training happens over usually a longer scope. A lot of people take two or three years to complete it. And it's broken down into modules most of the time so that there's a longer process of learning, utilizing it, and then going back and learning more and just layering that information. The other really big difference is that a, a general yoga teacher might have a little bit of information about how to prevent yoga injuries and things like that, where the yoga therapist is going to get trained specifically in conditions that happen to the body and conditions of our mind and our emotions, so psychological conditions as well as physical conditions, and then knowing how to tailor the practice according to what that person has and what their goals are. It's a, a specifically created practice to help people to move in a certain direction where, of course, a general group yoga class has a therapeutic effect. You feel better when you leave, but it wasn't something that was specifically applied to you as an individual. It's usually something that's generally going to help most people in that class. That's a little bit of the difference between yoga and yoga therapy. And because I used so much of the anatomical terminology especially, that was one of the reasons that I felt like calling this book yoga therapy was more accurate. But it is definitely something that can be digested by a yoga teacher who has a general certification or a student who has a deep desire to learn more about the practice, for sure. This is all very digestible information. So then we get into the actual meat of the book. One of the first chapters, I go into the details of why. Why is the wall such a unique prop? In the beginning of the chapter, I have this list of words that I feel like summarize the feeling that you get during a lot of the sequences and practices that we do at the wall. And a few of the really key ones are stability, awareness, balance, integration, cohesion, boundaries, protection, challenge, and wholeness. When we look at the entire scope of really what's covered in the book, you'll notice that some of the movements, some of the sequences are very accessible even if you're not in the best physical condition. A lot of the things in here can be done just leaning against a wall and standing. And these are definitely things that I utilize in the therapy clinic when I'm working with people who have different neurological conditions. These are things that I've used in the clinic for several years now and found to be very effective. And people really like 
using the wall for support when they're doing different stretches or to feel their posture. That's one of my favorite things to have somebody stand back against the wall and really feel what their alignment is if they didn't have that internal sense already of where their body was in space. Because a lot of neurological conditions will change our sense of proprioception. It makes it more difficult for that person to feel where their body is in space and the wall immediately gives them feedback of this is where your body is. So that's very comforting to really feel that. Sometimes, not comforting, sometimes challenging because you realize I thought I had pretty good posture but now I can feel that my head is really far away from the wall and I didn't realize that. So I get that response a lot too. But that's the step of awareness. Once you know that your head forward, your head was very forward posture or your shoulders were very rounded or you had an extremely deep lower back curve. Once you know, then you're in that space of awareness and then we can start to bring you back into that space of balance. The most interesting thing about practice at the wall though is that we have those things that I can utilize in a clinical setting but then we also have the poses that are really very physically challenging. And I think for some people, when they think of the wall, it's that immediate idea of, oh, if I can't do a handstand or I can't do a headstand without support, I go to the wall. And that's kind of the end of the use of the wall as a prop. But there are a whole area of postures that you really can't do without the wall. One of them is a version of plank pose where the hands are on the floor and the feet are actually lifted um, about a foot and a half off of the floor. The soles of the feet are resting on the wall. So it's this elevated version of plank. It's very challenging to hold. Lots of upper body strength and shoulder stability and core stability is required for you to hold that. Much more than holding plank in the traditional sense where the feet are on the floor. And I always thought that was an interesting contrast of making certain poses so much easier physically and so much more accessible to people who have some sort of physical challenge and then taking it to the opposite extreme of somebody who's been doing yoga for a very long time, already has a strong foundation of strength and body awareness. They can take that to this whole other level of challenge. So it really offers something for everybody and then for the teacher, it gives you this ability to pick and choose what's going to be appropriate, which version is going to be appropriate for each person that you're working with. So it is a much more tailored approach to selecting poses and creating a program for somebody. The next thing that I think makes practicing yoga at the wall really unique is the ability to play around with gravity, more so than when we're on our mat. I mean, one of the unique things about yoga practice is that we're right side up, we're sideways, we're upside down, we're on our belly, we're on our back. We have this constant changing in our orientation to gravity, which I think is a very therapeutic part of yoga because we spend pretty much all of our day in a very upright seated or upright standing posture. So when you get onto your mat, you get that huge variety of so many different positions. It really helps our body to function the way that it was made to. 
when we throw the wall into the mix, we find that poses where you're upside down that maybe wouldn't have been accessible on your mat normally suddenly become accessible. So we're doing even more changing of position. And that highlights this whole experience of what is it like when we turn the body into different positions and the force of gravity, that constant downward force is putting that effort on the body in a different direction. When we're standing and when we're upside down, there's a very different effect on the body. And just to pick one example, the fluids in our body respond to gravity. Our blood pressure in our legs is stronger, it's higher than the blood pressure in our arm or in our head because gravity is pulling everything down. So then if you flip the body over, now the opposite is happening. The fluids are being pulled by gravity towards your head and the blood pressure at the lower part of your body has decreased because gravity has an effect on the way that the fluids are distributed in the body. There's an interesting show on Netflix called, I think it's called The Strange Rock, and it's about planet Earth and astronauts being in space and looking back at Earth and what their experiences were like. And one of the astronauts talked about the first time that they were in space as soon as you experience zero gravity, where you used to have gravity pulling everything down toward your feet, for the first couple hours that you're in space, you, you have a headache and everything feels like it's kind of rising up toward your head because you don't have that normal settling effect of gravity. It's a very different internal experience. So I thought that was extremely interesting, such a good way to understand that gravity is something that's consistent, it's always there, and because it's so consistent, we sometimes kind of forget about it, don't think about it. So then, when we jump into that next chapter, breathing at the wall, I talk about how putting the body into different positions against gravity has a subtle effect on our breathing. Now, Along the same lines, it's important to note that gravity is not essential for breathing because astronauts go into space and they can breathe just fine with zero gravity. The lungs are still able to expand, the rib cage and the diaphragm function pretty much the same way, changing the shape of the lungs to move air in and out. When we're in yoga poses on Earth with gravity, and we change the position of the body, the experience that we have is the, the contents of the abdominal pelvic cavity, our stomach, our liver, our intestines, will shift a little bit when we change directions with the body. So if you put yourself fully upside down, it's a little bit more challenging to breathe because now the contents of our abdominal pelvic cavity is now pushing into the diaphragm. So that changes the experience of breathing. It might not be something that we're always aware of, but I like to look at very extreme examples so that we can kind of understand and make sure that we don't miss some of that subtlety. And if you've ever seen somebody who has a very severe breathing condition like COPD, if we put them completely flat on their back, or if we put them onto their stomach, which we would never do, um, 
they would have an extremely hard time breathing because of the degenerative process that's going on in the body. It makes it more difficult to breathe when you have the pressure of the body on the chest and on the stomach when you're in a prone position. Or when you're supine, gravity is directly pushing against the lungs and the rib cage. So when we prop the body up slightly, which is really the preferred position for somebody who has a breathing condition, they prefer to sleep in a semi-elevated position, it is easier for the body to move against gravity because those muscles are getting weak. It's really just a challenge for them to expand and push out against the organs and push out against gravity. So. That's a very extreme example, but then we can look back into our practice and start to notice the subtle changes that happen. You might notice that when you're on your belly and you're going into cobra pose, it feels very different having pressure into the stomach and having to expand away to be able to breathe. So there's several illustrations in the book that talk about the direction of gravity and what happens when we turn our body into different orientations. Just a, a new little nuance that you can pay attention to as you're going through your postures. So going back to why practicing yoga at the wall is so unique, one of the things that we get from practicing at the wall is awareness of our back body. and. It's interesting to think about the fact that our sensory organs are really focused forward toward the anterior. Our eyes, our nose, our mouth, our ears are really very forward facing. So we don't have visual input of the back body. I can look down and see what's happening here, but I can't see what's happening with my back. So the only feedback that I'm getting there is from my skin, from that sense of touch, or from my internal sense of awareness. If I have a strong sense of proprioception and interoception, inner awareness, then I might have a better understanding of where my back body is or what shape it's in. But if I lacked those senses, then placing my body against a wall and getting pressure and getting external feedback is something that's going to help to increase my body awareness. One of the things that I really like to do is awareness of your shoulder blades, the scapula, how it's sitting on the back. You might not be able to feel that as you're just sitting or standing, but if you place your back against a wall, You'll notice if one is a little bit farther off of the rib cage than the other, if there's an asymmetry there, or we can look more easily and see if there's a height difference, especially if we put a grid behind you, which is one of the things that I like to use on the wall, a posture grid. That helps us to find things that we wouldn't have been able to see normally, wouldn't have been as noticeable. But it definitely brings more awareness to our back body, especially when we're doing standing poses. And we can do something like warrior two with the back of the body against the wall. We get a lot of information about what's going on back there instead of just that front view, like you would get if there are mirrors in your studio, always getting the front view of that pose. And that kind of touches on the next topic of 
using the wall for body awareness. It's not just isolated to the back body. It really gives us a lot of information about different spots, different joints, different alignment in the body, but it really helps with that process of awareness, especially if you're somebody who doesn't feel super connected and integrated to the physical body. The wall can be really helpful in that process of building awareness and connection. The next reason that I really like wall practice is because in Ayurveda, in the sister science to yoga, we talk about these three different doshas, which are personality and body composition characteristics. They're like these categories of what makes us us. And one of the most common compositions is the vata dosha. And vata is the air and ether element. This is the most common dosha. It is my primary dosha. It is the reason why I can be creative and I can come up with new ideas and create things. Um, because vata is my primary dosha, if that is out of balance, I can also get very scattered, unfocused, frazzled, um, anxious. And you can kind of think, well, those sound like really common things, and you're correct. A lot of people have vata out of balance. We usually say deranged, but that sounds really terrible. <laughs> so if your vata is out of balance, you will feel unsettled, ungrounded, unable to focus. And a lot of the postures and the sequences that we do at the wall have the effect of balancing vata, of making you feel grounded, allowing your mind to settle and allowing you to hold your focus on what it is that you're trying to do. So that's a huge benefit of using a prop that's as stable and supportive as the wall. Along those same lines, the wall for some people can create this sense of safety because it is a sense of support where some students might be nervous to try a particular pose in the middle of the room. A lot of people have that fear of standing on one foot if their balance isn't great. They might not even touch the wall, but just being near it, just having that proximity gives them that sense of, well, it's okay. If I do wobble, I can just put my hand out. And in that sense of feeling safe, they have the confidence to execute that pose that they wouldn't have tried in the middle of the room. I think along with that can also come a sense of emotional security that for some poses, being in the middle of the room and being really open creates a, a strong sense of vulnerability. And I know I noticed a pattern with myself that I will, when I'm going into a yoga class, I will tend to put my mat either on one side of the room or the other. I don't like being in the middle of the room as much. And I, I didn't really think about that until very, very recently that I feel a greater sense of security when I have that wall on one side, even though in a normal vinyasa practice, I probably wouldn't use the wall as a prop. I just like placing my mat near it because it makes me feel some sense of security. So I think that was interesting and probably a subconscious level of why I wanted to write this book. The next topic that I'll talk about is kind of the more obvious one, which is 
using the wall for balance and that sense of security that it does give people. When I work with people who have balance deficits, we almost always put something in the vicinity that if you need to hold on to it, like a chair or a table, a lot of work we do at the kitchen countertop because that's something that people can do at home. But using that as a place to explore balance and it's such an important thing to work on because this is a very functional component of what we do in the physical practice of yoga. We are maintaining our range of motion at different joints. We are doing all of these things that keep us strong and help us to have good mobility so that we can pick things up and reach for things and bend over. Um, and we also need to maintain our balance, especially when you start working with older populations. Falls are a big concern. It's really the number one thing that we talk about when somebody comes into the therapy clinic. We want to know, have you had partial losses of balance? Do you wobble a lot? Have you had falls? Have you had falls where you've injured yourself, like broken a bone? And that's something that we look at very carefully. And even if somebody has not had a fall, but they're up in age, we will usually incorporate fall prevention training, how to get up after a fall, and um, if we notice any signs that would point to osteoporosis, we usually encourage them to get a bone density scan because as balance declines, that puts you in a higher risk for having a fracture because of a fall or a partial fall. Um, Balance is something that I try to incorporate into every single class and every teacher is different but I encourage you when you're doing your lesson planning to always try to work in a few poses that specifically work on balance. It's really going to be something that helps your students at a functional level to be able to live a very normal happy life because their balance is, is strong. The next thing that I'll talk about at the wall, which is really pretty unique to the wall, is body rolling. Taking a ball, and we've done this in my class recently, and I'm going to be teaching a workshop about this pretty soon. Taking a ball and rolling out the muscles in the neck and the shoulder, the back, the chest, the lower back, all around the hips, the outside of the legs. There's so many different spots that you can reach at the wall. When you have a ball and you can like move your body around and, and really explore the muscles, it helps with that whole sense of body awareness of, oh, I didn't realize I was tight there. I didn't realize I had a knot there, but now that I'm pushing on it, I can feel that that was going all the way up into my neck. So it really helps with that process of building a better connection to your body and giving you tools to have a really strong self-care practice. That is such a big component of working on your posture and doing these different muscle rolling techniques, doing the breathing techniques. All of those things can be integrated into your regular self-care practice. The next part of practicing yoga at the wall that I think is very unique and beneficial is this idea of bringing variety into our movement patterns, specifically for the purpose of avoiding repetitive strain injuries. And I think recently 
yoga injuries have been getting more attention and we've been talking about it more. It's kind of uh, a topic that was once kind of taboo to talk about the fact that you could actually injure yourself in yoga practice, that it wasn't this perfect, always healthy, amazing healing process. Sometimes yoga and the physical postures that we do can hurt our body. And that's the truth with any kind of movement system, whether you're a dancer or you're skiing or you're playing soccer, there's always a risk that you can injure yourself when you're moving your body if you overdo it. Yoga is exactly the same way. But in a kind of unique way, since we're always pushing our body into our end ranges of movement, and we're doing certain movements over and over and over, especially in a vinyasa-style practice, that opens us up to this category of injuries called repetitive strain injuries or repetitive stress injuries. Specifically for the wrists, the shoulders, the hamstrings, and probably some other areas that I'm not thinking of right now, but those are the ones that I see most commonly, wrist and shoulder a lot um, because when we're doing a vinyasa practice a teacher who wants to make the class hard and just keeps putting in that transitional vinyasa over and over and over you might do it 50 times throughout the scope of an hour or a 75 minute class doing that specific weight bearing lowering down lots of pressure in the wrist and lots of body weight in the shoulder in that one movement pattern over and over is the exact recipe that will cause a repetitive strain injury. The way that we avoid that is by strengthening our body in different ranges of motion, by bringing variety into our movement so that we're not just strong in one very specific movement, we have a greater diversity of strength and stability because we've practiced different movements. The wall opens up this whole plane so that we can practice chaturanga with our hands in different directions, we can do different wrist strengthening movements, we can add all these other things into our practice that might not necessarily be accessible when you're practicing just on your mat. The one really key part of that that I like to focus on is chaturanga because so many people come to yoga after being very sedentary or having a desk job or doing a lot of driving where the upper body posture is not great. There's a lot of weakness in the posterior chain muscles, the upper back. The rotator cuff is probably not very strong. The upper body is just not prepped for weight bearing, which is one of the things that we talked about in the last episode of the podcast, how the upper body really needs a lot of preparation to be an effective weight-bearing structure. It can, as long as you build that foundation, but a lot of us are so goal-oriented when it comes to achieving yoga poses that we push ourselves beyond where we probably should safely be at that time instead of allowing that gradual natural progression of the poses. Or, When there's an inconsistency of practicing, that opens you up to injury as well. So if you practice really strongly for two weeks, and then you stop for a week, and then you go back to that same class, your body has lost some of what you were working on previously. 
you can't expect it to be in that exact same spot that it was when you were practicing for a few weeks consistently. So you always have to take that into consideration, but the wall becomes this training ground where we can start to introduce different movement patterns, where we can work on different muscles and explore those movements in a place where you don't have full weight in the arms, especially in the case of practicing chaturanga. I always joke with my students that when you're doing chaturanga at the wall, your form is amazing, it looks perfect, you have such incredible control because you don't have your full body weight and you're not like scrunching and holding on for dear life, trying not to flop yourself onto the floor. So that gives you this opportunity when you're at the wall and you can control it to feel the alignment. Oh, this is what I'm trying to do that I couldn't do when I was on my mat. And that becomes this whole aha moment and really helps people see the difference that when I do have adequate strength to do that movement, it's this whole other experience. So the wall as a way to increase our movement repertoire and to prevent repetitive strain injuries from doing too many repetitions of certain poses the same exact way. The next section is going to be about exploring movement. And I started to go into a little bit of like movement physiology and the different types of stretching, the difference between active range of motion and passive range of motion. But we'll leave that for the next episode. And I'll also talk about some of the other chapters in the book for the next episode. There's literally so much information in this book. I could teach multiple workshops just from the 160 pages of this book. But I wanted to let you guys know that coming up in a couple of weeks at the end of July, I'm going to be doing a collaboration with Dr. Melissa West. And we had done a collaboration video, I think it was last year, where I did um, a video for her channel and she did a video for my channel about the neck. And we had such a great time doing that that we decided this was a good time to do another collaboration. So Melissa's going to be doing a yin at the wall and I'm going to be creating a video for her channel about posture and growing taller using techniques at the wall. So definitely go onto YouTube and make sure that you follow Dr. Melissa West. It's her lifestyle channel. She has two different YouTube channels, Yoga Lifestyle with Melissa. And there's just a huge variety of topics that she covers. And for me, when I was a newer teacher, I remember finding her videos and feeling so inspired by the fact that she taught all of these different topics that most teachers didn't bother to touch on about digestion and some therapeutic application for our yoga practice. And I feel like that was one of the things that really helped me to understand that my personal focus in yoga needed to be on the therapeutic application of yoga. So Melissa was a big impact on my evolution as a teacher, so I'm so happy to be working with her and being able to create this collaboration. So make sure that you follow her on YouTube and on Instagram. I'll leave some links for that below. I look forward to sharing that stuff with you guys. Thank you so much for watching this episode of the Yoga Focus Podcast.
much for joining me in this episode of the Yoga Focus podcast. If you'd like to leave me a comment or a question, you can go over to my YouTube channel at Laura G Yoga and leave a comment under the video format of the podcast. Or you can go onto my Instagram, which is also at Laura G Yoga and leave me a question or send me a direct message on there. If you want to ask a question for a future podcast topic, go over to the Anchor app on your phone and you'll have an option on there to send me a voice message and you might be featured in a future episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end of the podcast. I just wanted to talk to you guys about the book that I released in June of 2019, which is called Yoga Therapy at the Wall. I've worked on this book for the past three years to create all of the pictures and all of the information in here. It's 162 pages and it's a full color manual. The chapters are broken down by body parts that we focus on using the wall to help us learn about different movement patterns and how to change some of the yoga postures to have a specific therapeutic focus. And you can really start to understand when you look at the book why I feel like the wall is the most underutilized prop that we have in yoga. We kind of forget about these things that we have all around us and that we almost always have access to a wall to utilize in the practice. So. This manual will give you a ton of ideas to expand and start to utilize the wall as a prop. If you're interested in ordering, you can get the printed version on lulu.com. Um, you can either take the link in the show notes or you can go on Lulu and look up yoga therapy at the wall. There's also a digital download option, but for that you have to go on Etsy and my Etsy store is Healthy Focus by Laura G. Or you can just search yoga therapy at the wall. Thanks. Hope you enjoy it.